What were the stories that the people who raised you would tell you over and over again when you were a kid? The the stories that were meant, obviously, to instill values in you in terms of helping you see who you were and what life was about. I I was talking to my older brother about this this week, and he remembered that my dad used to tell a story when we were kids about how when he was a kid working on a farm, as we were at the time, that he would work as hard as he could to finish his row fastest and then use that extra time to go and help the person next to them finish their row. And that the story seemed to be aimed at driving home two values that, number one, my dad would actually say this, there will always be someone who is faster and smarter and stronger than you, but no one should ever outwork you. And then he would say, basically, and when, because you worked hard, you get ahead, use that advantage to help the person next to you. Those were the values that the story was meant to instill in us and kids because that's what those stories do and in a certain sense that's what the stories that we're going to be looking at in the books of Exodus are meant to do as we resume our journey through the book of Exodus starting in Exodus chapter 7 verse 8 and we're going to look at some of the most famous stories in the book of Exodus the stories of the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and Israel being freed from slavery in Egypt If you're unfamiliar, you could rent the movie Ten Commandments and get caught up. But these were the stories that became foundational for the Israelite people, the stories that were central to the Jewish Bible that got told over and over again in different ways, revised and modified to continually reinforce in the Jewish community who they were and who God was and what life meant when it was lived in a relationship with God. These are, for the Jewish Bible, the equivalent of the stories of the death and resurrection of Jesus for Christians. Just the central stories that told you everything you needed to know about who God was and who you were. And so these are the stories that we're going to be exploring over the next seven weeks. Now, I need to say um, that we're not going to be going through, you know, plague by talking about what the plague of the Nile meant and then what the plague of frogs meant or whatever. For the first three weeks, we're going to take the nine plagues together as a unit, and we're going to mine out the themes that I think Israelite ears were meant to hear in the telling of these stories. And we're going to begin by looking at this weird little story that becomes a a bit of a prologue to all of the first nine plagues. In fact, it becomes a key to interpreting what the plague stories are doing well. And it's this quirky little story about Pharaoh demanding that Aaron and Moses perform a magic trick. And so Aaron throws down his staff and it becomes a snake in front of Pharaoh, a cobra, the text that we read today says. Now, I'm going to say at the front end, um, we're not going to spend a lot of time as we look at the 10 plague stories trying to figure out what really happened. You know, what we would have seen if we had a video camera and filmed the events as they unfolded, because that's not what the stories are meant to do. I, we, Chris and I were having Zoom dinner with some friends this week, and, and the wife was kind of joking with the husband that he tells the same stories over and over again, and every time he exaggerates them just a little bit. And, 
And I jumped in and I said, listen, the point of telling a story is not to provide an accurate factual account of what really happened, like a book report. The point of telling a story is to have an emotional impact on the hearer. And if you have to shape the story to have that impact, then shape the story. That's what it means to tell a story well. And that's what we have in these stories. We, we can't really know what actually happened if a man named Aaron threw his staff against the ground and did it really become a snake. We just have this story that is told to teach us something that's true about God. And that's true of all the plagues. We won't spend any time asking, did the Nile really turn to blood? Were there really frogs? We just are going to read the stories to hear what they have to teach us. And this story says that Aaron threw down his staff and it became a serpent, a snake. In Hebrew, the word is tenin, and it actually means something more terrifying than a cobra or a snake, though some of you can't imagine anything more terrifying than a, a snake. It was a, the word tenin referred to a mythical creature, a sea monster, or even a, a dragon that was a common figure in ancient creation stories. It was a creature that brought chaos and darkness and death into the world before creation happened. And in some creation stories, even in some stories in the Bible, God had to defeat this chaos monster that sowed death and darkness in order to create a world that was filled with life and light and hope and peace. This serpent was an anti-God, anti-life force of chaos, darkness, destruction, and death. That's what the staff turns to when Aaron throws it down. Another interesting thing, the reason the translation uses the word cobra is because the cobra was a symbol of the Egyptian empire. If you look at King Tut's death mask, like the one on the screen right now, you can see that on King Tut's forehead, one of the creatures emerging from the forehead is a cobra because the cobra represented symbolically the wisdom and strength and divine power of the Egyptian empire. It was everything that made Egypt great. In fact, Pharaoh's throne had a cobra painted on either side, both to protect Pharaoh, but also to suggest that Pharaoh was the source of the wisdom and strength and divine power that made Egypt great. When Aaron throws the staff down and it becomes a cobra, symbolically, what the story is saying is that everything that Egypt thinks that it is is actually under the control of God. Now, Pharaoh calls in his magicians and his wise men and religious experts. And as the story goes, they throw down their stabs and they become snakes. And it kind of symbolically says on behalf of Egypt, they're, they're wise men and religious scholars. They're saying, no, no, no. Everything that Egypt is, is the result of our wisdom and our divine power. And then Aaron's serpent swallows the other serpents as if to say, no, the God of Israel is going to eat your gods for lunch. Our God is going to destroy everything that you think you are. And that's actually how we are to read the stories of the plagues. The plagues are confrontations between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt to demonstrate over and over again that Israel's God is greater. Take the first plague, 
the plague of the Nile. In Exodus 7:22, it says this, Moses and Aaron did just as Yahweh commanded. And he raised the shepherd's rod and he hit the water in the Nile in front of Pharaoh and his officials and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. See, the Nile was the source of Egypt's greatness. It was the source of their agricultural power. It was the source of their fishing industry. It was a shipping lane. The Nile brought security and prosperity. It was the Nile that made Egypt the empire that Egypt was. They used to worship the Nile as the god Hopi. And Hopi was responsible for the greatness of the Egyptian empire. And then Moses strikes the Nile with the rod and it all turns to blood. As if to say, first of all, our God is greater than the God Hopi. Our God is in control of everything that happens in the Nile. Never mind that the Nile, far from being the source of your greatness, is now actually, it has always been a source of death because of the oppressiveness of your empire and it is unclean and contaminated and you can't do agriculture with blood, you can't fish in blood, you, you know. God is saying, I am destroying everything that has made your empire great because I am greater than the God Hopi that you worship in the Nile. Take the ninth plague the plague that brings darkness. It says in Exodus 9, Moses raised his hand towards the sky and an intense darkness fell on the whole land of Egypt for three days. People couldn't see each other. They couldn't go anywhere for three days. But the Israelites all had light where they lived. Egypt worshiped the God of the sun, most often called Ra, for the entire history of their existence. And in fact, often Pharaoh was referred to as the son of Ra. Ra was one of the great gods of Egypt. And all of a sudden, at Moses' command, the God of Israel comes and just turns the lights out on the Egyptian empire, plunges the whole empire into isolation and despair and depression, and maybe more powerfully, shuts the oppressive work of enslaving Israelites down for three days. For three days, God overcomes the Egyptian god Ra, but gives light and life and freedom to God's people, the Israelites. See, over and over again, this is what happens in the plagues. And here was the purpose of it in Exodus 8 verse 10. Moses says, that way you will know that there is no one like Yahweh, our God. Whether it's the God Hecht, who was the frog-headed God of fertility, or whether it was the God Min, who was God of the harvest, or the God of Serapia, who was the God that protected Egypt from locusts. Over and over and over again, the plagues demonstrate that there is no one greater than the God of Israel. Egypt looked to all of these gods to provide the the wisdom and the strength and the power, the life, fertility, wealth, comfort, peace, security for the empire of Egypt. Egypt looked to these gods to make Egypt great. And over and over again, the plagues reinforce 
that God is greater than the gods of Egypt. And God, the Egyptian empire has become a place of oppression and injustice. And God was about to shut it all down. That it is only with the God of Israel that you can find light and life and hope and peace and freedom. That's the story of the plagues over and over again. And I think it's a story that's important for us to hear because although we don't worship idols, I doubt very many of you have statues of gods in your home that you bowed down to. John Calvin 500 years ago was right when he said the human mind is a 24-7 idol factory. What he means is Human beings continuously invent ways to worship things that aren't God. An idol could be defined as anything your heart clings to and anything you rely on to provide you with ultimate security and happiness that isn't God. So no, we don't worship Hecht and we don't worship Serapia, but we do worship money and stuff. And we worship entertainment and comfort and leisure We worship sex and romance. We worship marriage and having a family. We worship political power and popularity and influence. There are so many things that in and of themselves are good things. They're gift from God. They they are the things that God gives us. But we take these good things that God gives us and we turn them into the ultimate thing. We turn them into the thing that we think is going to make us capital H happy. We turn them into things that we worship in the sense that we determine that these things have a greater worth or value than anything else in the world. These become the gods that we serve in the sense that they're the reason we get out of bed in the morning. They are what we spend our time and our money and our effort and our energy trying to attain for ourselves. They become our de facto gods. And they are our gods for the same reasons that Hecht and Serapia and Ra and Hopi were the gods of the Egyptians, right? In the ancient world, the reason there were so many gods was because there were so many things that you needed to make life be what you wanted it to be. And so the mentality was, if I can just worship the right God at the right time, in the right way, with the right words, I can convince that God to give me what I want so that my life is the life I always wanted, And we have that exact same mentality. If I play my cards right at work, if I play my cards right at school, if I play my cards right in this relationship, if I play my cards right on social media, if I play my cards right in this dating app, if I play my cards right at the gym, if I play my cards right online, whatever the case may be, if I play my cards right, if I do the right things in the right area of life, I can get for myself the life that I've always wanted. And so we turn the good gifts of God, these good things, into the ultimate, most important things. We worship them in that we believe they're worth more and they have greater value than anything else. And we serve them with our lives by living as though everything in life was dependent on me having money and stuff or experiencing entertainment and comfort and leisure or 
having sex or experiencing romance or getting married or having kids or experiencing power and influence or popularity, whatever the case may be. We live as though our capital H happiness depends on that stuff. And Jesus says, it doesn't. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, the thief enters only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came so that people could have life, indeed, so that they could live life to the fullest. See, the, the, the good news about Jesus is that Jesus wants for you exactly the same thing that you want for you. Jesus wants your capital H happiness. Jesus wants you to live life to the fullest. But Jesus says, when we think that's going to happen because we have money and stuff or comfort and leisure and entertainment or sex and romance or we get married or have kids or we have popularity or power or influence or whatever the case may be. Jesus says, when you look to that stuff, it becomes a thief and it steals and it kills and it destroys that that stuff like for Egypt, that stuff may work for a while. But it will ultimately disappoint. And in fact, it will usually, like the plagues, blow up in your face and create disorder and despair and distress and darkness in your life. Because you have made a good thing into the ultimate thing and you've worshipped it like an idol. And that's not where the fullness of life comes from. Jesus says, we talked about this last week. Jesus says that the life that God fills with ultimate blessedness, with ultimate capital H happiness, the life that is the fullest, the life that is your best life now is the life that comes from a transformed heart that loves God and loves people people. The life that brings us happiness, Jesus says, is the life in which we love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, with all of our being, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. You will experience your best life now, not if you and I finally achieve the things that we always wanted to achieve and, and you know, um, finally have for ourselves the things that we've thought are the most important in life. We will experience the fullest version of life to the degree that we love and desire and pursue God with all of our life when that becomes the most important thing. When we start to live with our entire life, our, our heart and our mind and our being and our strength and everything that we have is committed to living as though God is the most important thing. Because God is. And allow God, when, when we start living like we talked last week, as though the most important thing is that God's kingdom would come and God's righteousness would be lived, that God's love would permeate our relationships with God and ourselves and each other and the marginalized and our enemies and society and the world and the planet. And God's love would fill the world. When we live as though with all of our strength, as though that's the most important thing, that's where the fullness of life is to be found. C.S. Lewis wrote a uh, hundred years ago, almost, 
He says that the problem with us is not that our desires are too strong, it's that they're too weak. We fool around with money and ambition and drink and thinking that these things are going to make us happy as though, even though ultimate infinite joy is being offered to us. He says we're like children who are content to make mud pies in the slums because we can't even imagine what it would look like to take a vacation by the sea. He says the problem is not that we want too much, it's that we are far too easily pleased. God wants what you want for you. God wants you to live life to the fullest. And God is prepared to fill your life with the good things that you crave. But God says, only when God is allowed to be the most important thing in your life, when loving God, there nothing matters more than loving God and nothing consumes our lives more than pouring ourselves out to God as though God matters most. Because he does. Let's pray. God, would you set us free from the ways that we worship idols, from the ways that we think that there are things in this world that are more valuable than you? Would you set us free from the ways that we serve those gods, the ways that we get out of bed and spend our time and our money and our effort and our energy to get these things that are less important than you. I thank you that you give us good things, that you pour these gifts into our lives, but would you uh, protect us from not turning those good things into ultimate things? Would you set us free from our love of all of this stuff so that we could be free to love you as though you matter first and foremost, because you do. Teach us to live that with our lives, we pray. Amen.